Uh, most men and women living in the 13 colonies uh, did not choose to rebel against or remain loyal to the crown in an instant, uh, or even for a single identifiable reason. Um, rather, these changes came gradually as lived experiences slowly changed attitudes towards imperial authority. And we're not accustomed to thinking of the American Revolution in these terms, in terms of kind of intense personal struggle. In 1815, John Adams influenced generations of historians when he wrote that the war for American independence, quote, was no part of the revolution. It was only an effect and consequence uh, of it. For the founding father, as we can see in this uh, uh, line, the revolution was in the minds of the people before a drop of blood was shed at Lexington. And although scholarly understandings of the revolutionary era have changed a great deal since the time of John Adams, uh, his distinction between the revolution itself and the war that followed in his, in his uh, uh, formulation uh, has really remained, especially in the popular memory of the event. And there are reasons for this, which, which have their origins even before Adams began kind of his, his uh, la the last 10 years of his life kind of framing the revolution. Um, so there, there are, are definitely concrete reasons uh, that this has happened. But this oversight is serious, and it's robbed us of a vital aspect of our revolutionary heritage. Uh, and as an example, we don't look at, for example, the French or the Russian revolutions without looking, that, looking at them in the context of the bloody civil wars that they both provoked and which uh, they both kind of centered around. And I want to argue that for most Americans, the Revolutionary War was a traumatic, constantly changing experience, the impact of which was felt not in the abstract, but viscerally, as a violent struggle transformed the everyday lives of ordinary men and women. And these wartime experiences, more than the political maneuverings of the Continental Congress or state-level governments, changed political people's relationships to political authority and reshaped their ideas about social and governmental organization. And perhaps nowhere is are these processes of individual change more evident than in cities occupied by the British Army, which is where what my book primarily studies. Between 1775 and 1783, Every large North American port city fell under British rule. In Boston, the pre presence of British forces to enforce trade regulations became a full-fledged occupation with the appointment of General Thomas Gage as military governor in 1774. After the Continental Army forced the troops out of Boston in March of 1776, New York City became British headquarters for the remainder of the conflict, with its citizens living under garrison government from September of 1776 until November of 1783. In the winter of 1776, the British garrisoned Newport, Rhode Island, uh, which we don't think of as a major city today, but uh, during the colonial period, uh, consisted of about 12,000 people, making it about the third or fourth most populous city on the Eastern seaboard. Uh, 
Um, they garrisoned uh, Newport with a force of German mercenaries and British regulars in order to secure its valuable harbor um, with a force, uh, uh, sorry, to protect naval approaches to New York uh, and to check rebel privateers operating out of New England. Philadelphia, the capital of the revolutionary Americans, was then occupied in the winter of 1777 through the spring of 1778 as a part of General William Howe's campaign to retake the middle colonies. Uh, and in late 1779, the King's army refocused its efforts on the South, uh, garrisoning Savannah, Georgia and Charleston, South Carolina in 1780, uh, both of which remain under military rule until late 1782. Now, as centers of population and commerce, occupied cities should have been bastions from which the empire could restore order and inspire loyalty to the crown among a wavering population. Uh, and indeed, if a counter-revolutionary movement was going to emerge anywhere, uh, it would have been in America's cities, which uh, where the population was more culturally, economically, and politically tied to the mother country, excuse me, um, than anywhere else on the continent. In each city, British officers were not ignorant of this potential. Uh, officers and prominent civilian loyalists collaborated to craft well-planned, workable regimes intended to balance local and imperial priorities uh, and to entice Americans to return their allegiance to the crown. And this was a major priority in each of these six cities. Further, military rule's exceptional social atmosphere provided avenues for many people, especially women and the enslaved, but also free men and even soldiers, to reinvent their lives for the better. These enticing new opportunities came with dire risks, as the very military that created them also ushered in a violent new society under which previously protected classes found themselves vulnerable to harassment, robbery, assault, rape, and even murder on a daily basis. Still, the hope of social and economic betterment under military rule caused thousands to embrace military occupation. Nevertheless, military rule utterly failed to bring out a restoration of British authority. Despite efficient civil military administrations that evolved and the new opportunities that they promised, by the end of the war, the lived experiences of occupation weakened imperial authority to its breaking point. Survival under harsh material conditions forced even the most loyal subjects to resort to smuggling, begging, and other illicit means to feed and shelter themselves. Those living in occupied cities learned by necessity to obfuscate their loyalties, taking advantage of the British military's periodic offers of amnesty to those who declared themselves loyal, while maintaining ties to the rebel camp as well. The necessity to evade imperial authority and to preserve allegiances on both sides of the war steadily undermined British authority as the war dragged on. And in city after city, by the time the army withdrew, most residents and even many who had wholeheartedly supported the king at the outset of the conflict no longer saw restored British rule as a viable option. Thus, while Americans living under occupation did not rise up en masse and uh, reject, uh, uh, occu resist occupation forces, uh, indeed, this would have been a, uh, a much easier book to write had they done so. Uh, 
Uh, their everyday experiences under military rule uh, nevertheless had a deep impact on the outcome of the revolution as a whole. So for the remainder of this talk, I'm gonna highlight just a few of the messy, complex experiences of military rule that drive my book. Uh, and roughly this is a brief kind of summary of three of my six chapters. Uh, I'll focus first on the unique social world of occupation and the strange opportunities and harsh conditions that it created. Uh, then I'll talk about the ambiguous allegiances that civilians developed to safeguard their lives and their property uh, in the face of these dangers. Uh, and I'll conclude by demonstrating how survivors of military rule reshaped private and public memories of the event afterwards, uh, in some cases to erase their complicity in occupied regimes uh, and to safeguard their futures in the new republic. Uh, and in so doing created a, uh, a memory of the American revolution, a very uh, uh, carefully curated memory of the American revolution that remains with us today. Now, occupation fundamentally altered the social fabric of American cities. While the army displaced many local elites, for others, military rule offered brave new avenues for social advancement, sometimes in radical ways. An event held possibly in this house in Charleston, South Carolina, during the winter of 1782, demonstrates the possibility that British military rule brought about. On a January night in the besieged city, British officers and newly freed black women participated in a night of revelry, which would have been unthinkable in almost any other circumstances. The women who had two years earlier been enslaved by prominent Charlestonians went out according to one account, quote, dressed up in taste with the richest silks. At precisely eight o'clock in the evening, they were escorted an officer by officers in gilded carriages to, quote, a very capital private house, uh, very likely the uh, Miles Bruton house here in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. I apologize for the, the graininess of the photo. I took this myself on uh, a research trip uh, to Charleston and it was a kind of a gray drizzly day. Uh, as you can see, the house still stands, uh, retains much of its uh, colonial architecture. Uh, it's been restored. It's, it's in private hands uh, and sits uh, uh, appropriately on King Street. Uh, it happened also to be military headquarters for the British occupation um, of the city during the Revolutionary War. Uh, actually, it was military headquarters again during the Civil War when the Union Army occupied uh, Charleston. So these women were escorted to a very capital private house where they proceeded up the steps into a grand Georgian ballroom. There they enjoyed a, cupper that, a supper that, quote, cost not less than 80 pounds sterling uh, before dancing until nearly four in the morning. And although instigated and funded by British officers, the managers of the ball were three former enslaved women owned by prominent revolutionary leaders. These women went so far as to assume their mistress's names on the levy, signing the cards with the surnames of Pinckney, Russell, and Fraser, some of the uh, richest colonial families of South Carolina. The event outraged many white onlookers inside and outside of the city, uh, 
with one correspondent describing it as evidence of the quote, state of shame and perfidy that officers of that once great nation of Britain have, have arrived to. Perhaps to defy their critics, the British officers who organized the event christened it the Ethiopian Ball. Now the Ethiopian Ball encapsulates the nature of society, occupation society, uh, both in the strange possibilities it suggests and in the dangers involved in acts of defiance against the old social order. The black women who participated in the event had profoundly reinvented themselves in the space of two short years of occupation. As the British army moved through the South, it offered freedom to those enslaved people willing to turn against their patriot masters. As these refugees came into occupied cities, they reforged their lives as free people for the first time. Seen in this light, the women who participated in the Ethiopian ball were quite literally taking on new identities. Even if they were still on unequal footing with their officer escorts, and they certainly were, they nonetheless used clothing, rituals, and even names to declare their new status as free women. And although they did so in less spectacular fashion, thousands of other newly freed people made similar journeys, building new lives for themselves under military rule. I'm happy to talk about other examples of this uh, in the Q&A. Another equally important aspect of the ball, however, is the precariousness of the event, both for the soldiers and the women who participated in it. Despite their radical refashioning of themselves, uh, the women who participated in the ball were ultimately in the power of British officers. And even in their fine silk gowns, faced threats of sexual violence and intimidation. Further, the event took place only months after defeat at Yorktown and all but sealed uh, British military withdrawal, lending the event a note not only of defiance, but of desperation. The officers who danced with ex-slaves on that January night likely knew that they would soon have to cede the city and possibly the entire North American continent to the revolutionaries. While the impending withdrawal and defeat might have been damaging for their careers and social prospects, it threatened absolute ruin for the ex-slaves who took part in their society. Freeing oneself was precarious under the best of circumstances, uh, and many newly freed people saw in the impending British defeat a near certain return to the state of bondage that they had so recently escaped. Uh, in this light, the Ethiopian Baltics on perilous, unstable notes, which defined military occupation just as much as possibilities for social change. And indeed, even for those that benefited, life under military rule was marked by hardship as much as, or perhaps more than, as by opportunity. Much of this was brought on by the demands of a large military population that could often could not command the resources of the countryside, which in many places remained hostile to British forces or were intimidated by the Continental Army or state revolutionary forces from supplying the British. In Newport, Rhode Island, for example, the British Army nearly doubled the town's pre-war population of around 10,000 residents adding just over 7,000 men, 600 women, and 500 children, and straining the town's resources to its breaking point. Uh, and you can see this uh, contemporary map of Charleston, or of Newport, shows that it's not a, a very big town. Uh, and anyone who's been to Newport you know, uh, knows that you can kind of walk from uh, this area here, this, this kind of old Quaker neighborhood um, down on the point over to kind of the, the 
eastern edge of the city in about 20 minutes. This is, this is about a mile and a half uh, total along the ski front and about a mile back in uh, towards Aquidneck Island. Uh, so this is a lot of people kind of squeezing into a really small area. One British officer recalled that in the midst of a particularly brutal winter, the commandant of the city had been forced to, quote, give orders for the cutting down of almost every tree on the island for fuel. Uh, in addition to tearing up many houses, most of them belonging to revolutionary sympathizers who had fled before the British arrived, uh, and tearing up a lot of farmers' fences. Indeed, as many as 200 buildings were lost this way over the course of the occupation, thus burned for fuel. When trees, fences, and abandoned buildings uh, ran out, the garrison actually began sending ships to other islands in Narragansett Bay, uh, and even as far as Long Island to cut timber for the post. Uh, this was dangerous because rebel privateers uh, patrolled those uh, waterways and there were not enough British ships to protect these timber cutting expeditions. But even with these extraordinary measures, Newport's situation was often desperate. During one particularly brutal winter storm in December of 1778, uh, and we know from climate records that uh, the winter of 1778-79 was one of the most, one of the coldest and most brutal of the second half of the 18th century. Uh, several Hessian soldiers froze to death in their unheated guardhouses, found as a mid 19th century uh, chronicler described, quote, standing in their sentry boxes, frozen to death, each with a musket standing by his side. Food also became scarce. One resident reported to a friend in Boston that, quote, you may be assured that there are many who can scarcely get a single mouthful of bread for several days together. A sympathetic British officer lamented that, quote, there was a great deal of sickness among the inhabitants, which should be attributed more to their want of the usual quality quantity of fresh provisions. Uh, in Newport and elsewhere, even civilians who wholeheartedly supported British rule had to endure shortage and privation, causing many to question their faith in the righteousness of the royal cause. The presence of large numbers of poorly paid and ill-disciplined soldiers also led to frequent abuses against civilians, especially women. In September of 1776, two privates in the 56th Regiment of Foot raped young mother Elizabeth Johnstone in her home on Long Island. According to testimony at their trial, which was itself unusual, there are very few court martials uh, for sexual assault um, in the uh, uh, British Army records. Um, the two men, uh, according to testimony, the two men entered the women's house, house in the aftermath of the British invasion of Long Island and violently assaulted her in front of her four-year-old daughter. In a similar case, a British court-martial convicted Private John Dowling of the 22nd for the rape of a Newport woman on Christmas Eve, 1776, sentencing him to death. While a few especially heinous cases of rape came to trial, countless others went unreported. And even when courts-martial uh, courts did try cases, women faced pressure to forgive their abusers. Despite their convictions, both of Elizabeth Johnstone's rapists had their death sentence commuted following the intercession of their victim. 
Likely other soldiers in the occupying force pressured uh, Johnstone into intervening with threats of deprivation or further assaults. And the threat of such unpunished violence permeated occupied towns and let them an undercurrent of danger, which undercut even the brightest possibilities that restored royal rule promised. So in reaction to the harsh conditions and the violent nature of military rule, men and women living in occupied towns developed distinctly flexible loyalties, or at least the appearance of distinctly flexible loyalties, much to the frustration of both British and revolutionary leaders who vied for their allegiances. In the course of their everyday lives, uh, people living under military rule made pragmatic, calculated decisions to ensure their own survival, to protect loved ones, and to safeguard property. These choices could tacitly or openly support either side without much prejudice. And as a result, the same individual could appear to one side a rebel while maintaining loyalist status on the other. It's one of the things that makes the, the story of occupation really, really messy. Despite the fluidity of their loyalties, these men and women cannot be regarded as mere opportunists. And rather than a selfish expedient, I argue that keeping one's loyalties ambiguous represented a deliberate and necessary strategy to survive the food shortages, cramped quarters, and violent circumstances of military rule. Now, the experiences of Hannah Lawrence, uh, the daughter of wealthy Quaker merchants, during the experience of New York City reflect some of the nuances of these flexible loyalties. During the summer of 1779, the young woman came to dispose, despise the British forces occupying her city. Uh, and this is a, an early print of the occupation of New York. Uh, if anyone notices the buildings and the streets look nothing like Manhattan, uh, that's because the printer was going off of accounts of the occupation. Um, the printer of this lived in either the Netherlands or Germany, um, had never actually seen New York and so kind of uh, made up what he thought it might look like. Um, but these were kind of published widely as scenes of, of the British Army's triumphs in North America. So in the summer of 1779, Hannah Lawrence came to despise the British forces occupying her city. Uh, and like many in the upper class, she was an aspiring poet. She turned her pen against both the occupiers and those who comforted them. Uh, she found American women who entertained British and loyalist suitors especially abhorrent and crafted a particularly strident poem railing against the use of Trinity Church's grounds as a promenade area. Uh, and the church had been burned down in the Great Fire of New York in uh, September of 1776, just after the British arrived. Um, and its ruins became kind of this picturesque scene for British officers courting American women. Lawrence wrote uh, in her first poem that, quote, this is the scene of gay resort. Here vice and folly hold their court. Here all the martial band parade to vanquish some unguarded maid. That's kind of satirizing the, the predatory nature of uh, British soldiers, um, kind of trying to uh, uh, court American women, uh, but also a little bit the, the flirtatiousness of uh, American uh, women and, and kind of British officers. The piece, which was left anonymously on the steps of the ruined church, caused quite a stir in the city. Uh, she followed up six months later, satirizing the proposed demolition of a part of Trinity, 
Trinity's churchyard. One verse in the second poem joked that, quote, enlarge the walk to which the fair and shining nightly thongs repair. The female size by hoops increased, referring here to hoop skirts, which were, were uh, de rigueur among uh, middle and upper class women during this period, demands a tomb or two at least. So she's saying, you know, why don't we get rid of all of these tombs so that uh, British officers and their American girlfriends can promenade? In addition to these, Lawrence crafted poems lamenting the captivity of Continental Army General Charles Lee. Uh, praising Corsican revolutionary Pascale Paoli uh, and castigating New York loyalists who had retreated to England during the city's occupation. Uh, and if her poetics are to be believed, and I very much think they are, Lawrence very clearly supported the revolutionary cause and loathed British forces. But a few months after writing her second poem condemning British officers courting American women, Lawrence herself married Jacob Scheifeler an American who was serving in the King's army. Uh, despite her earlier strong feelings about the British cause, she apparently felt few qualms about marrying into the British military. Although she agonized over the prospect of marriage itself in a journal she kept during her courtship, her prospective husband's position came up only once when Lawrence confessed, quote, to marry him while he continues in any way connected with the military will certainly be very disagreeable to me but even that may have its advantages in traveling. So this marriage at first blush may seem hypocritical, a betrayal of her earlier anti-British principles. However, even after the event, she continued to opine against the occupation of New York in her poetry. In A Farewell to the Hudson River, Shiflin, the newly minted Hannah Shiflin wrote that, quote, on thy banks while dire oppression reigns, thy beauties hasten to a general doom, no future springs spring renews thy faded plains, no more thy grooves shall rise or orchards blue. After this farewell, the Shiflins left New York for the safety of British Canada, returning only after the war. Now Hannah Shiflin's experiences demonstrate the ambiguities of individual loyalty under occupation. Shiflin's case in many ways defies our traditional understandings of patriot and loyalist. While she supported the revolutionary cause in, uh, personally and ideologically, uh, her decisions on a practical uh, level favored the British. This flexibility doesn't indicate that she lacked conviction or devalue her clearly thoughtfully considered political ideas. Rather, as her very calculating journal entries suggest, this apparent confusion represents a deliberate strategy. Living in an occupied city in which abuse of power, disease, starvation, uh, and death were rampant, few could afford to be scrupulous about political affiliation. With few opportunities available to even a well-off young woman living under military rule, choosing a promising marriage represented perhaps her only chance to make the best of the situation. And indeed, Hannah Shiflin's marriage did allow her freedom of travel through British military lines and the opportunity to escape the dangers of occupied New York for more hospitable territories. The flexible concept of loyalty to which she and many other Americans adhered reflected the social realities of occupation and the small scale politics of survival rather than the rigid ideologies of revolutionaries or at least kind of the revolutionary elite. As it did so, however, it also weakened the British empire's grip on its American subjects. And indeed, many of those who professed 
professed open loyalism also maintained balanced and ambiguous allegiances, keeping ties to both sides in order to survive. Mary Almy, who was a boarding housekeeper in Newport, Rhode Island, remained in the occupied town even while her husband volunteered for the Continental Army. During the summer of 1778, Almy's husband, Benjamin, was captain of artillery in an American force that surrounded and almost captured the town of Newport. Uh, and this is kind of a contemporary map of the Battle of Newport showing just how close the American forces got uh, to the, the town, which is at the southern end of Aquidneck Island. In spite of their relationship, however, Mary expressed ardent support for the British cause. In a series of never sent letters to her husband during the siege, she made no secret of her thoughts on the matter. Writing that, quote, my dislike of the natives that you call your friends is the same as when you knew me. And that, quote, you will not be surprised by my warmth and anger when you find how I have suffered. Later describing the destruction of much of the city in an artillery barrage, likely provoked by or, or instigated by Captain Benjamin Almy, uh, she turned her anger against the Revolutionary Army and its leader, exclaiming that cursed ought to be and will be the man who brought woe and desolation on a good people. Uh, later she writes, quote, I am for English government and an English fleet. I care not for the Frenchmen, the allies of the British army. Still, Almy, Mary Almy expressed affection for her husband and worried that if revolutionaries did seize the town, her husband would be resented in his own home exclaiming, quote, after three years, a wanderer and not to meet a welcome. She much preferred it if he were captured and paraded through the city as a prisoner of war, um, though she doesn't get into quite how that would work for their marriage. Like many others, Mary Almy's loyalties vacillated freely between support for the British cause and sympathy with friends and relatives engaged in rebellion. And while in hindsight, we may see this as a contradiction in terms, it was far more common than not among ordinary cities living, ordinary citizens living in occupied cities. Such connections could prove essential to survival under military rule uh, as the wartime experiences of the Brinley family whose members spanned three occupied cities demonstrate. During the siege of Boston in 1775, Francis Brindley, a wealthy Newport farmer, supplied several friends and relatives with fresh provisions. Uh, in July of that year, he sent up, quote, two, dozen, two or three dozen of well-grown chickens, a dozen of ducks, which his brother uh, Thomas, who lived in Boston, uh, wrote are not to be procured here at any rate. A few weeks later, Francis and Thomas's brother George, also a resident of Boston, requested more birds as well as two good fat sheep or shoals and a little good butter. And he continued to send supplies through the British blockade uh, as long as he could. Now Francis's generosity paid off when Newport itself was occupied at the end of 1776. After fleeing Boston with the British evacuation, his brother George Brindley had followed the army to New York and managed to obtain a civilian position in the British Army's commissary department, which he used to support his brother Francis and occupied Newport. 
Uh, in the spring of 1777, George sent Francis a quantity of wheat purchased on Long Island, though he lamented that, quote, there was no port wine to be had. A few months later, perhaps to make up for the lack of port, George sent up several uh, casks of Madeira via a British captain, but confessed that I can't think of, you send, think of sending you any butter, uh, as what we have here is horrid. Uh, in March, George sent his brother something far more valuable, a letter of introduction to Newport's new commissary, who he assured Francis would help him, quote, at any time he should be in want of anything in his power. Uh, he sends him, in addition, money, uh, clothing in the winter, and a lot of other supplies, um, some of which he even stole from the British Army's commissary department to send to his family. And the connections that supported the Britannies through the war persisted even as the physical areas they lived in changed hands. Even as he relied on supplies from George in New York, Francis in Newport continued to correspond with and support his brother Nathaniel in revolutionary controlled Boston. Uh, Nathaniel had been imprisoned uh, by the revolutionary government as uh, a suspected loyalist. Similarly, George kept up his correspondence with Francis even after the British had evacuated Newport. In October of 1781, two years after Rhode Island had reverted to revolutionary rule, George wrote that he'd been unable to return one of Francis's slaves who had absconded to New York City, but was able to send his brother 20 guineas, which would surely have been welcome in the still economically depressed town and which would have been illegal under both British and revolutionary law. Family support thus transcended zones of control for the Brindley family and many others uh, as people attempted to aid one another regardless of which side claimed control of a particular region. And as military rule went on, British officials became more and more aware of Americans' propensity to obscure their loyalties and began to distrust even their most ardent supporters or those who claimed to be their most ardent supporters. Even those who signed loyalty oaths could be fickle, and these were distributed in pretty much every major city that the British occupied. Uh, we have the most from New York City and Charleston, South Carolina, but we know they were also distributed in uh, Newport, in Philadelphia, in Savannah, Georgia. Um, and vast numbers of people signed these things. In New York, about 5,000 residents, uh, constituting a majority of the male citizens left in the area, uh, signed these. In Charleston, about 2,000 signed these. Um, these were majorities of city residents, at least during occupations. But in New York, one occupation official complained that, quote, a man of some rank in this town who was signed an oath of loyalty has a correspondent to the southward among the rebels, with whom he has arranged to give intimate, proper intimation when it will be proper to leave the rebels and so vice versa, making loyalty a sure game. Uh, a council of top military officers concluded in the spring of 1782 that despite the fact the majority had signed oaths of loyalty to the crown, the inhabitants of Charlestown, Charleston, uh, are mostly of doubtful principles. Uh, and as occupation officials began to realize that they could not take uh, their erstwhile subjects' professions of loyalty at face value, uh, they lost faith even in those who remained ideologically loyal, 
dooming the success of restored imperial rule. Basically, when loyalists and British officers ceased to trust one another, uh, the project of restoring British government really goes south. As a result, occupation regimes crumbled from the inside as both civilians and soldiers became disillusioned with the project of military rule. Now I'll turn now to the years after the revolution to kind of conclude my talk. Uh, and in the years after 1783, the experience of occupation posed significant problems for those who sought to make sense of the American Revolution as an event. Those who had endured the physical privations and psychological strains of military rule, and who had made the difficult moral and political sacrifices necessary to survive, had to find a way to adapt themselves to the realities of a post-revolutionary world in which the British had lost and the uh, uh, revolutionaries had won. Not all had the option of remaining in America. At the end of the war, historians estimate that around 75,000 people left the continent forever, and some historians have said this is probably on the low side. These included men and women who had joined the British Armed Forces during the war, uh, some 15,000 enslaved people, and many people who had been exiled from revolutionary communities for their loyalist beliefs, or whose complicity in the, war, the British war effort had landed them on lists of attainder issued by revolutionary governments. George Brindley, for example, who had used his position in New York's commissary to help his family fell into this last category. And despite having supported revolutionary relatives, uh, left shortly before British withdrawal from New York to start a new life in Nova Scotia. But tens of thousands of others equally complicit in British rule remained in America. Brindley's brother Francis, who was equally supportive of occupation regimes, was able to remain and live out his life in Newport without much consequence, as was Mary Almy, the boarding house keeper whose loyalism estranged her from her Continental Army officer husband. These people and tens of thousands of others who remained in America after the war had to obscure the ambiguities of their experiences and uh, uh, kind of allied the compromises that they had made under military rule. To do so, they rearranged the narratives of their actions during the war to fit the post-revolutionary reality that left little room for nuance. Just as they had become adept at obscuring their loyalties to survive during the conflict, in the decades after the war, civilians who had lived under British occupation became just as skilled at hiding their wartime actions, often in plain sight. As survivors of military rule reshaped their experiences within the United States, they did so in the concept of a, in the context of a larger reframing of the revolution uh, that occurred in the decades of the early Republic. And this was a new types of type of history that was sympathetic to people trying to move past their lives under military rule. From the 1780s until the passing of the revolutionary generation, historians politicians, clergymen, novelists, and often these categories overlap, attempted to create orderly narratives out of the chaos of the war years. And despite their firsthand experiences that many of these people had, um, so two of the earliest historians, David Ramsey and Mercy Otis Warren, uh, actually had personal experience of military occupation. Uh, Warren, when uh, her native city of Boston was occupied at the beginning of the war, 
Ramsey as a prisoner of war on parole in occupied Charleston, uh, these people nonetheless crafted polemic nationalist narratives uh, to which Americans seeking to reinvent their wartime experiences could cling. And these new works, the, ambiguity, the ambiguities and contradictions inherent in the revolutionary experiences were elided, ignored, and replaced with fabricated narratives, more in keeping with the political ambitions of the authors, which was a unified American republic. Such re-envisioning was reinforced by a larger American society that proved willing in the interests of renewed economic prosperity and the maintenance of a fragile new social order. And this is one of the arguments that uh, Alexander Hamilton makes uh, along with John Jay and, and many other revolutionaries that we have to kind of give amnesty to loyalists in exchange for uh, their economic and, and political contributions to the new republic. Uh, these people decided kind of collectively to overlook the offenses of all but the worst who through actions or words had sided with the British army at one time or another during the war. Uh, so long as the survivors of occupation proved willing to forget their past, at least publicly, uh, and embrace the new narratives provided by patriot historians, they could claim their place in the new Republic alongside those who fought against the crown from the beginning. Now, the experiences of a man called Tench Cox demonstrate how one survivor of military rule at least escaped the consequences of his acts and rose to great heights in early Republican society. And many of you will probably be familiar with Cox for his uh, role as a political economist during the 1790s and uh, under, especially under uh, the administration of Thomas Jefferson. During the occupation of Cox's native Philadelphia, uh, the young merchant had been a strong supporter of British rule, developing social connections with British officers and civil officials, and using these to develop a thriving mercantile business. He became very wealthy under British occupation, essentially profiteering off of the occupation uh, uh, regime. Things changed markedly, however, when the British withdrew in the summer of 1778, and Cox moved immediately to cover up his actions and protect his position. Uh, even before the troops left, Cox snuck out of town to sign an oath of loyalty to the revolutionary state of Pennsylvania. Uh, and in the weeks that followed, he leveraged family connections to postpone and eventually dismiss an indictment brought against him for his collaboration. You can see this early oath um, in his papers at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Um, While many of his neighbors were being stripped of their property, exiled from the revolutionary state, or even executed for their actions under the military regime, uh, Cox moved to protect himself further, destroying letters and excising incriminating names, dates, and specific articles from his business records in an attempt to wipe out his past. Uh, and you can see this uh, in his papers, again, at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Uh, there are certain parts of his letter books that are kind of excised with almost like with a razor or, or a penknife. Um, you know, even parts of some letters that, that are kind of almost redacted uh, because he never wanted the, to see them come to light. Although accusations of collaboration dogged Cox throughout the rest of the war and even into the 1780s and 90s, 
the young man nevertheless was able to rebuild his life relatively unfettered by legal consequences suffered by many others. But the real success of his rehabilitation did not become evident until years after the war. Uh, as he entered politics in the 1780s, Cox's opponents periodically brought up his former loyalism as an effort to discredit his ambitions. But his past never seriously hampered his rise in society. Uh, and in his defenses against these critiques, Cox's arguments tracked remarkably well to the narrative crafted by the revolutionary historians like David Ramsey and Mercy Otis Warren. In one early instance brought on by Cox's potential appointment to the Continental Congress in 1788, a, uh, the merchant torn politician cast his collaborator past as, quote, one youthful indiscretion and explained his loyalism as circumstantial, as being only in his late teens and early 20s during the occupation. Uh, Cox explained that he had been, quote, driven by the violence and threats of a body of armed men when a boy to the British army. Does it leaves out the fact that as a boy, he got very, very wealthy at the hands of the British army as well. Life under occupation had thus not been his choice. And while living in occupied Philadelphia, he pointed out that, quote, in many instances, he had been kind to friends of the American cause. Finally, Cox and his supporters appealed to, quote, the necessity of moderation and conciliation in the post-war era and a ploy perfectly adapted to the sentiments of much of American society after the end of the war. By adopting this carefully developed narrative, in 1778 and again, uh, or 1788 and again throughout his life as he rose into positions of power, Cox was able to defend himself against accusations of loyalism and rehabilitate himself in early Republican society. And although this case is particularly well documented, uh, though not as well documented as I would have liked, uh, due to Cox's eventual high standing, thousands of others likely followed a, the similar course. And thus in the decades after the revolution, American society proved ready and even eager to forget the ambiguities, compromises, and messiness of the revolutionary experience and to accept a much more clear-cut version of its memory, even if that new version allowed former loyalists and collaborators to remain in American society. This public forgetting was not only deliberate on the part of early nation builders, but also vital to the survival of thousands of Americans who lived under military rule and whose experiences shaped the course of the revolution. But it came at a steep cost and one which remains with us today. Because of this revised narrative, much of the complexity of the revolutionary experiences has been washed from the public memory of the event. And the formative experiences of a group of people vital to the success of the revolution has been pushed aside in favor of a static narrative populated by virtuous patriots fighting against misguided loyalists and oppressive British soldiers. And the film, The Patriot, uh, is, is kind of the epitome of this view of the revolution. Only by recounting the lived experiences that lie beyond this fabrication, which is what my book attempts to do, uh, can we hope to begin to understand the complex experiences, dynamic processes, uh, and lost opportunities of the real American Revolution? Uh, and I thank you all for your attention and welcome any questions.
Thank you. That was really interesting. I'm excited to check out your book. I haven't had a chance before now. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Allie, who is going to moderate our Q&A. If you have any questions that you didn't get in yet, please feel free to put them in the chat now. Great. Thank you so much. Um, that was very interesting. And we got a lot of good questions. Um, so the first one uh, is one of my questions. What was the most interesting thing you found doing research for your book? I think the, the most interesting was was uh, kind of what I mentioned towards the end that that so many of these people took such great lengths to kind of hide their their complicity or the level of cooperation that they uh, had with British authorities during these occupations. Um, I mean, it was it was kind of one thing to, to look through the Cox papers and and see his letters and and kind of look at kind of the outline of a story of, of his life in that in that kind of two years of Philadelphia's occupation, uh, and then see how he kind of excised parts of that and and how you know that that uh, you know we often attribute things in in the archive that are lost or missing to kind of the, the age, but um, you know it was almost every time that a specific name would be mentioned it would be kind of crossed out or or you know nicked out with a penknife. Um, the same thing was true with with the letters of Mary Almy, uh, the the Newport uh, boarding house keeper. She um, actually kind of hid those away, uh, gave them to a friend, and basically said nobody should ever see this um, after the uh, the war ended. And they weren't discovered until the 1850s by her great grandchildren, uh, who were looking through you know an old attic and and found oh grandma was a loyalist, um, you know. So so just kind of that that kind of um, like the conscious effort of, of covering up, I thought was, was the most interesting part. Great, yeah, I found that very interesting as well. Um, so we, you talk a lot about um, British occupation within the city of Newport um, and how it's sort of a smaller city today. Why specifically did the British go there, choose to occupy Newport? Yeah, I mean, uh, so uh, it was a strategic objective. Uh, Newport Harbor is one of the best deep water ports uh, between New York City and Halifax. Um, and uh, it has the advantage over the Hudson River in that it doesn't really ice up uh, over winters. Um, and so it was primarily seized as a naval base. Uh, it was also part of kind of British grand strategy in the first half of the war, um, as the, the idea was that an army would come down from Canada and capture Albany, uh, and another army would march north from New York um, and uh, capture kind of West Point and the Hudson River forts, um, and therefore kind of having a garrison at Newport would prevent um, the Continental Army from preventing either of these things by having to station troops to defend Boston as well. Um, so there were a couple of tactical and kind of strategic reasons to, to the seizure of the city. Uh, incidentally, the, the, the occupation has a direct uh, effect on why the city is, is not prominent after the war, um, you know, because it was so brutal and because, uh, you know, so many buildings were lost and, and people left uh, during the occupation, uh, the town never again kind of regained its commercial prominence um, and entered into a, a long and deep depression that really didn't uh, um, subside until the, the middle of the 19th century when rich New Yorkers started to, to build mansions um, in, uh, in the city. 
one of the reasons that Newport uh, has one of the, the best collections of uh, revolutionary and, and kind of 18th century architecture that you'll find anywhere on the East Coast as well. Interesting, poor Newport. Um, so you talk a lot about what British occupation was like in the cities, um, but what was it like uh, outside in kind of the more the frontier in the countryside? Yeah, it, it's um, one of the reasons I focused on cities is, is because it's just very hard to uh, to tell in a lot of these places. Um, you know, the, the British occupied vast swaths of land in New Jersey, uh, in the Carolinas, um, in uh, parts of Virginia, um, in Georgia, um, and in, in New York. Um, but in rural areas, you know, it was it was much less in, it was less intense in terms of an occupation and more intense in terms of what we almost kind of might call kind of a guerrilla war or, or, a, or a low scale kind of civil war. Um, you know, you might go for for days or months without seeing a, a British soldier if you lived in, say, backcountry South Carolina, even though the area that you lived in was was occupied by the British Army. Um, but what was more kind of dangerous and the, the more drivers of the actions were loyalist and revolutionary militias and loyalist and revolutionary kind of towns um, who went after each other with, with kind of bloody ferocity um, in both New York, New Jersey, and uh, more especially in South Carolina and Georgia, where we see just kind of communities turning on one another over, over politics um, and over, over their political uh, uh, affiliations and uh, just massacring one another. Um, the other thing on the frontier that makes things a little bit different is the presence of Native American groups, especially in, in the South. Um, you know, the British depended on the support of the Creek and the Cherokee to, to kind of maintain their control over uh, Western South Carolina and uh, Western Georgia. And this was ultimately kind of fell apart as Cornwallis took most of the British troops and, and marched north um, towards, uh, towards Yorktown. Um, so I'd say on the frontiers, it was both quieter in that, you know, you could go for months without being reminded that there's a war going on um, and much more violent because when you were reminded that the, there was a war going on, it was likely that your village or your farm or your family was burned down and, and you know, you lose kind of everything. Wow. Um, so I have to ask this one since we are a tavern museum. Um, what would have what would have a what would a city tavern would have looked like that was occupied by Great Britain? Were there soldiers and patriots kind of dining side by side? Yeah, you would have seen, I mean, not necessarily open patriots, but um, yeah, soldiers and, and people who held revolutionary sympathies, uh, you know, frequenting the same sorts of establishments and the same, uh, the same sorts of kind of coffee houses and taverns and, uh, and social gathering places. Um, I mean, one of the most famous uh, examples of this is, is kind of in, in Charleston, South Carolina, where there's this, um, you know, narrative after the war of all of these, you know, unblemished patriot ladies of, of Charleston, um, you know, who, who never would have succumbed to the, the, uh, way, the uh, courtships of, of British officers. Uh, whereas the archival evidence shows they were, you know, in the taverns, they were going to the balls, they were um, in the theater, you know, they were socializing with these people at, at all levels. Um, we also have, uh, you know, evidence that that kind of um, dinner parties, you know, were, were held um, at which prisoners of war and British soldiers and others were, were 
in attendance, um, you know, got drunk, sometimes got violent, um, you know, in, in the ways that, um, you know, upper class society or mid, upper middle class society kind of would have worked um, in, uh, in, in kind of regular, quote, quote unquote, 18th century society. Interesting. Okay, this is going to be my last question because we're about out of time. Um, if you could dine with anyone at Franz's Tavern, who would you choose oh to dine gosh. with? Oh my gosh. That's I know it's one. not an easy one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would think, I mean, I, I got to go with the, 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 uh, the old canard of Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, just, just kind of picking his, even with all, you know, the problematic aspects of his personality, just kind of picking that brain um, for uh, insights into politics and society and, and the way that human, human beings work is, uh, would I think be too tempting to, to resist. Good answer. Um, thank you for all your great answers and the incredible lecture. The book is Occupied America, if you're interested in reading about it more. Um, thank you, Ali, for facilitating our Q&A. And thank you to everyone in attendance for your great questions and for joining us and supporting Francis Tavern Museum. Thank you to those of you who have donated to us in the past. If you are enjoying our programs and would like to help support us, you can make a donation on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. On the website, you can also join our mailing list and stay up to date with our public programs content. Our next lecture isn't until April, but if you are interested, we are hosting a online Revolutionary War trivia event Friday, March 26th. You can get tickets at the uh, website, francistavermuseum.org. There will be prizes. It will be a lot of fun. I hope I'll see some of you there. Um, and I think that's it for all of us. So everyone, thank you for spending your evening, afternoon, late night, or wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to see you again soon. Thanks so much, everyone. It was a privilege.